Welcome to Moments with Marianne. I'm so delighted we're spending this time here today. We have a very thought-provoking show coming right up with special guest David Kaczynski, and he's here today to share with us his new book, Send Packs. Born into a military family, David started his life as a United States Marine. He was in the last all-male OCS in the United States Army, and it was at the top of his class for military intelligence, specializing in remote sensors and aerial platforms. David went on to become a Green Beret as a combat officer, serving two tours in Iraq and one in Sudan. Later, David was selected to be an FBI agent, where he received three letters of commendation personally from the director. So let's welcome to the show, David Kaczynski. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the time. Oh my goodness. I mean, soon as I got a hold of your book, I had to have you as a guest on this show. I mean, oh my goodness, I could not put it down once I started reading it. Well, there's there's so much that you could understand better than just the normal people just from, you know, the, your show, you know, just listening to it and it's like, wow, she's going to understand where I'm coming from. It's not, I won't have to connect any dots for Marianne. <laughs> well, hey, I appreciate that. That is so very kind of you to say. And I've got to ask you, like, how long did it take you to write this book? I mean, because, gosh, it's, it's a, I think you knocked this one out of the park. Well, technically 30 years, but uh, actual probably about, uh, about eight months total. Getting it together and and doing the research and the background on that? Well, the final. I mean, I, I started the research 30 years ago uh, when this brain virus happened to me, and it's it's bothered me my whole life. And then all of a sudden, I was in Iraq, and there was a huge battle, and it dawned on me uh, when uh, my supply person or the person back at the base, after a very brutal gun battle, said, you know, what do you need? And both of us are Green Berets, and both of us had a problem with the historical uh, version of the Little Bighorn. And so I, I just wrote, you know, two words, the same thing that, uh, that Custer wrote to Reno, send packs, which it's a military term, packs, meaning ammunition and water. And my unit was really taking care of, of the... Uh, of the terrorists that were trying to take over the the power plant in Mosul. And after a very brutal 93 minutes in which they lost, we won. And it's, what do you need? And, you know, I I need water and ammunition. And that's when it dawned on me. Esther didn't say, I'm being overrun. And so that's what really started the book when I got back. That was, I guess, the epiphany. And that was when I started getting all this spiritual help of, uh, you know, putting all the pieces together. Well, and it's interesting. It takes a person with your, I mean, it's it, it basically like this book is meant for you to write because it takes a person with your, you know, military background because you were a senior military intelligence officer and a decorated FBI agent that you could be able to not only write the story that the way that you did, but present it in such a way that it really has a solid argument to it. Exactly. And the reason it's historical fiction and not another book on the Little Bighorn, oh my gosh, I think there's like like 600 books on Little Bighorn. None of them, they got it right. So historical fiction gives me, uh, I guess, the freedom 
to tell everybody what happened. And, you know, the only people that actually know what happened are dead. And uh, as I started delving into it, there were the, the story from Hollywood or that uh, everybody believes started falling apart. And one thing, the FBI, the first thing, the first day, the first class in the FBI, they quote Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Eliminate the impossible, and all that's left is the truth. And, uh, you know, with my intelligence background, I knew that you never go with one source, ever, never, ever, ever. And uh, I just started picking it apart and going, you know, and what jumped out at me was just phenomenal. I mean, okay, who is this? Who was Custer? I mean, really? Okay, he was this, uh, you know, arrogant fop that, you know, like, flamboyant dress and overinflated ego and boy were they wrong mm-hmm. oh my gosh the most yeah. important general to cause the end of the civil war that's who george armstrong custer was mm. you know it's interesting you look at that you know there's the facts that you were able to unearth I mean, it, it appears that history needs to be rewritten in regards to just um, Custer and, and Little Bighorn. It, it, all the people that have actually read, you know, written the books, and I have read way too many of them, none of them have been in combat. You know, none of them were ballistics people. And being on a SWAT team and sniper, you know, that's what our life is. This is ballistics. And what you have are the Indians riding on a horse with no stirrups from 500 yards out firing pistol ammunition, whereas you have the very experienced 7th Cavalry firing rifles from a prone position or a supported kneeling position. And, yeah, and when the, uh, you know, when I saw the casualty figures, it was 238 troopers dead and 31 Indians impossible that's impossible how could firing pistol rounds at 500 yards versus from a, 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 a you know a horse with no stirrups it it it, it doesn't work it, again the impossible it's impossible eliminate the impossible all that's left is the truth is that he he was combat ineffective at the end of that quote-unquote massacre you know Custer's last stand. I, I just hate that term. Well, and, you know, on that topic, you know, how has Hollywood and the press really painted Custer as a buffoon and failure? I mean, do you feel like that's even correct? Not even close. Not even close. I mean, he, uh, he, he loved his men, and he would never throw away their lives, which was evidenced in many, many uh, encounters in the Civil War. I mean, the the reason that nobody in the union liked him or the other uh, union generals was the fact he led from the front. Okay, does that make him arrogant? No, that makes him a fantastic combat commander. And the reason he had all the floppy hats and the cravat and is so that in a sea of blue, <laughs> which it was, you know, hundreds of blue uniforms, they could see where their commander was and. If anybody who has been in combat knows that the plan goes out the window the second the first round's fired. And, you know, he was, he loved his men, unbelievably courageous and always led from the front. And, 
I, I'm sure what he said in the book, in my book, he said, you know, at the very end, it was like, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't know I would be betrayed like this. And the way that it ended for the 7th Cavalry was nothing, nothing like Hollywood shows them going, oh, mommy, mommy, with their hands up. The 7th Cavalry of 1876 were the most elite of the elite. So basically, they were the Green Berets of today. And having been a Green Beret for over 30 years, I can tell you that if we're surrounded and we're about to be overrun, what we're going to do is, and it's on the cover if you can look real close, we're going to call in Broken Arrow. And that means we're about to be overrun, and those poor sons of bitches are going to take it because we're not going down slow. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting when you start, you know, reading Sin Packs and, and the story unfolds just how much of this part of history we really don't have right, in my opinion. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this, and I agree with you. I think a lot of the things aren't – it doesn't make sense. And, you know, when we look at Custer, I mean, he was in the Civil War, right? Yes, yeah, uh, from, the fr- from the start to the end. He was the first, as a captain, he was the first Union officer to take uh, a rebel uh, colors, the colors. In other words, the rebel flag. That He was the first one. The other part, which is fascinating, is he was the first forward observer in history because he went up in a balloon with a telegraph, and he called in artillery fire from the balloon. He was the first first person to do that, too. So he was... He was always on the on the cusp, on the front. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting. You know, cowards don't lead from the front. You know, that doesn't happen. No, they don't. People, no. No, no. It's there are heroes that do that, and um, so he he definitely was a hero. And it's interesting how he really distinguished himself in combat. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it, a lot of your readers, I'm sure, are either from the from back east or they have at least traveled there and what you find out is it's not like the west it's there's these huge trees everywhere and it's rolling hills and what custer could do he could put the battle space in his head and he would like tell the artillery fire in that direction charge six and then skedaddle and constantly it was outnumbered i mean almost every every major encounter that Custer was in, he was outnumbered, and he always came through with victory. I mean, Jeb Stewart outnumbered him four to one right before Gettysburg, and he fought him to a standstill to where Jeb Stewart couldn't be there for Lee when he needed him, when Lee needed him, because one guy, George Armstrong Custer, and he's just, uh, I mean, besides that, he's he's real. I mean, everybody portrays him as this, you know, two-dimensional I don't know, robot, when in fact, uh, if you read about him, he was, he, he was, he was romantic. I mean, he, he married the prettiest girl who was, you know, she was the pretty, prettiest girl, how did they put it, from Michigan, and she was the prettiest girl in a town famous for pretty girls, and uh, it's just, you know, and Libby Custer, you read her writings, you know, that ha- you know that she wrote afterwards, and it's like, no, no, none of this, none of the portrayal of uh, Custer is correct. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting. You really interweave the uh, you know portions of their love story within ten packs, and we're not going to give too much of it away, but. There's a lot of romance <laughs> that happens in this book with the main character, David Cole. And so you you are reading this book, and I mean, I've had my girlfriends say, gosh, you know, they got the book, they started reading it, and then they, they really got into it because it has this huge romance piece that you know, most people aren't expecting. Uh, yes, even my editor. <laughs> said, she said what, what you said, you know. Uh, and probably most people, if they if they look the back, oh, okay, he was a lieutenant colonel, Green Beret. He was an FBI agent. You know, he worked at the national labs. Um, you know, if he's got three patents, oh, I know what this is going to be. Boring. And that's not true. It's not true. I mean, it's uh, uh, historical fiction allows you that freedom to tell the truth. And, you know, what we're finding out, there, there's a lot of things like uh, what really motivated me to finally, you know, go down the path was the discovery they found out there really was a King Arthur, you know, whether and Merlin, he may not have been a magician, but he was a spiritual leader. And, you know, the the whole thing of Excalibur, which is, you know, I found fascinating, you know, Excalibur, the, you know, the, the famous sword of of Arthur. You, you've heard that? Oh, yes. Uh, where I could cut other swords in half. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody's going, well, you know, that was Merlin magic. Actually, it wasn't because Gladius Espana is the uh, the Roman short sword. And as Rome was falling down, the, uh, the Roman short sword became a sword instead of just a short sword. And they couldn't send it back, and it had the finest steel in the world, which is Spanish steel. And so what they did is they just, you know, they'd heat it up and hammer it down and fold it over, heat it up, hammer it down. What are we talking about? Anybody that knows metallurgy knows we're talking about the samurai sword. It's making every time they pound it back out, it's sharper. It's stronger. So, yeah, it would go right through the Saxon swords. And, you know, nobody, everybody was saying, oh, it's a myth, it's a myth. And, you know, it always bothered me about the 7th Cavalry, and the 7th Cavalry didn't do that. I mean, what I had in the book, that's what, that's how it ended. I mean, they, they died with multiple uh, arrows and bullets in them, still killing. And that's, that's, that, that's the spirit of the 7th Cavalry. Well, and that's something that we would expect from our elite fighting forces here in the U.S., you know? Exactly, and that's what they were. And, you know, the, the whole point that Hollywood and all these other academians, if I can say that, is that I don't think that's an expletive yet. And, uh, you know, they're, they're going, well, uh, all of Custer's men hadn't been in the Army more than a year. They hadn't been in the American Army. They had been part of the British Army, the French Army, and definitely the Germans. And just came back from the Franco-Prussian War, which was basically a huge cavalry fight. So, no, they hadn't been in the Army, you know, maybe a year, the U.S. Army. But they were experienced cavalrymen. They were experienced, and they were hardcore, and they were hard fighting. And there were a lot of Irishmen with them. So you, you can't get an Irishman in a fight without, without coming out on top. And if not, a lot of the blokes are going to be hurting. <laughs> 
Well, and you've got uh, some Irish characters within the book that um, that uh, lend to that uh, that dialect, and so it's it's interesting just how the book has all these pieces interwoven, you know, and. It makes me kind of wonder, you know, gosh, you know, how is Custard thought of by the Confederate forces, you know? Well, that's that's a really good question because you're known by your enemies, and the enemies had the greatest respect for him. Okay, what are you talking about, David? You know, wh- wh- how do you how do you get something so obtuse and get any proof on it? How about the proof that the surrender document of the Civil War? was signed on a small desk, and that desk was given to the general unanimous. The North and the South decided this, that that desk should go to the general that made that day happen more than any other, and that went to George Armstrong Custer. So the South, when they were ready to surrender and they were just setting up, you know, where to do it at Appomattox, the head of the, you know, right under uh, Robert E. Lee was Longstreet. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they sent him out to tell Custer, hey, quit fighting. We're we're surrendering. And Custer told him, hey, surrender to me right now. You know, I'm going to keep fighting. (laughs) And he was, uh, you know, he he was, he was a great, he was a great, you know, I think our greatest cavalry commander in the history of the United States Army. I mean, uh, he was like Alexander the Great who was famous for seeing the battle space and, you know, reacting to it, which is how he could defeat people that were, you know, 80 times his number, like with Darius, and, you know, just kick butt. And so that he would forget all that, I mean, the the same thing at uh, the Little Bighorn happened to him during the Civil War. So he he had actually been in that situation, and he knew what to do. So the whole 31 casualties of the Indians was, uh, I hate to say it, but uh, that was a figment of Grant's imagination to make Custer look bad. And there's a whole lot that, and we're not going to kind of get into that here, because I, I think it's part of what makes this story so intriguing, but there's a reason why Custer is really... Absolutely. Set up. Set up would be the yeah. word. Mm-hmm. He was set up. Yeah, it's I. You know, everybody goes, "Whoa, that that's not realistic." Well, come on, let's get in a little room, you know, where there's nobody listening, and I'll tell you what's happened, you know, in the modern army of setting up commanders in the field, you know. Yeah, just how that how that is. Does anybody does anybody remember Tillman? You know, the NFL star that at after nine eleven joined uh, joined the Rangers the army rangers and then he was killed by friendly fire we didn't know about that for four months so don't tell me it can't happen and especially if it's coming straight from the white house yeah because it that definitely does happen without a doubt well yeah and and as we look at this story what was custer doing right before the battle of little bighorn he was in washington dc testifying against the, the president's brother who was embezzling, well, modern-day uh, amount of money, of half a million dollars a year, embezzling from the Indian Fund. And Custer was also the officer in charge of going into the Black Hills and trying to get all the miners out of there, because the Black Hills is what we gave to the Sioux. 
And so he was back there and talking to congressman, who, of course, their word is as good is good for about five minutes, because he said, "Okay, well, I'll do this, but you got to give me good ammunition, which they had copper, copper instead of brass." And it, it, that that's in the book too about how unbelievable that is that they would give any combat unit ammunition that they knew would jam. And when I say jam, I know a lot of people don't know what that means. That that means that it doesn't mount, it doesn't function anymore. But copper expands so quickly that once you put it in the chamber and fired it, it would be stuck in the chamber. So you get one shot, and then your weapon's useless. So he was there trying to get that and take care of the Indians, which he, who he respected the Indian, which is kind of funny that the Indians, you know, yeah, we sued Custer. It's like he was just testifying on your behalf that you guys got screwed, you know, on the Black Hills. And all the, you know, the 300-pound gorillas, as we call them nowadays, but, you know, or carpetbaggers, which is what they were called back then, but they owned all the senators, and, you know, they were making money, and all they're getting gold out of the Black Hills, so it's just, Custer, you need to just, you know, shut up. Because Custer was on the Indian side, and he was, <laughs> he had basically given up his career, if it hadn't been for Crook. You know, saying, no, I I need Custer on this. This is a very important operation. And I think that's what uh, opened up for for Grant and his brother to set him up, you know, through the back channels with with Reno. Yeah, which, you know, reading that part, I mean, it's just so disheartening just how that all came together. It's like, oh, that is horrible. That is absolutely horrible. But, you know, yeah. it, it, it makes sense because the rest of it, if we look at history the way it stands, it, it doesn't make sense. You're right. Yeah, and that's what kept bothering me. It doesn't make sense. And, Marianne, I, I actually couldn't finish the book until I had my final uh, question answered, which is if Custer was such a good combat commander, how, how come so many of his men died in twos? away from the central area of, of uh, his command. And it wasn't, it was like, I remember it was like 3.32 in the morning. I, I just woke up, just bolt upright, and I knew what happened. And no, I won't go into that. That's in the book. But that will let you know why a lot of his men died in twos and why that, I guess, solidified how it ended how I say it ended in the book because of that. In other words, they didn't go, mommy, 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 don't hurt me, don't hurt me. They were really badly hurt, and they were still fighting and killing. Yeah. In your book, you portray the Indians as using a straight dialect and not what Hollywood usually predicts, you know, uh, kind of projects them to be. Um, Why did you do it that way? Well, one thing, I really respect, the Indian way. I, I have no Indian in me, but uh, I've been to uh, several, you know, sun dances uh, and things like that, and helped out. And I really respect it. And so, it, the whole point of you know, oh, me go eat. I'm going. No, they didn't do that. I mean, they couldn't have. So let's put this in perspective, okay? 
I believe that the greatest writer that the world has ever seen, and I think he's also a philosopher if you, if you love Shakespeare. Shakespeare only used 17,600 words in all of his plays and writings and everything like that. Uh, at the time, there were like 60,000 words that were available, but now, now there's argue, arguably maybe 180,000 words in the English language. Okay, you know, Shakespeare only used 17,000 of those, and I don't think anybody argued with me that they're still eloquent. And the Indian who mastered uh, herbs, uh, you know, when to, you know, how to react to weather, how everything like that, they had to teach that. They couldn't teach that by going, ooh, me look clouds. No, they were, were probably very eloquent you know, in their own language, which probably had like one-tenth the number of the English language. And, you know, mm-hmm. Shakespeare did a darn good job with one-tenth of the English language. I, you know, I, I really appreciate that you did that because it brings a lot of respect, um, you know, to the Indians in portraying them as, you know, not people who are um, maybe grunting or anything like that, but they, you know, they're able to really carry on this beautiful um, dialogue, and we're just kind of behind, <clears throat> excuse me, behind the eight ball on that, you know. Well, the other part that none of the, well, let's just say the historians, you know, ignore, and now I know why, is that quite a few Indians actually weren't in battle in the Civil War, but they did support it because they were really good with horses. And so, like one of my Indian characters actually saw many battles, you know, between the North and the South near the end of the war and would have come back to the tribe and talked about the Gatling gun, would have talked about airburst artillery. And the the whole thing that the the Indians, you know, probably didn't believe him because it sounded so fantastic. Hold it. You had one gun that could fire a thousand rounds a minute. Uh, I think I think he's got too much peyote in him, but it's not mm-hmm. it's not true. And you know, Custer because he had respect for the Indian and didn't want to. You know, all he wanted to do was get him back on the reservation. He didn't. He wasn't interested at that point. He just wanted to do the mission, <laughs> or he would have brought his Gatling gun, and the Gatling gun, which was under his command back at Fort Lincoln, was not the 45 caliber that is normal. He had a one-inch, one-inch diameter. That's like a 20-millimeter round. Wow. And the 20-millimeter is what you knock out tanks with. So imagine that thing firing a 1,000 rounds, and it would easily have hit uh, the compound. Or he could have had some of his small spanker cannons, brought those, fired air burst. There wouldn't have been anything left of the Indian. But he chose not to. You know, not because he was arrogant, like everybody said. He just wanted him, you know, he felt sorry for him, which that, I think, is his only thing that he did wrong. Well, on that note, we're going to pause here for a quick break. We've been speaking with David Kaczynski in regards to his new book, Send Packs. You've been listening to Moments with Marianne. We'll be right back after these messages.
Internationally recognized and award-winning author Judy Goodman works and teaches outside the box of limited thinking. Working with people from every walk of life, her goal is to empower you to be the best you can be, no matter what the challenge is. Born with the gift of seeing beyond our normal vision, she has an extraordinary gift of working with every challenge. Teaching beyond conventional wisdom, her work is described as life-changing. Visit JudyGoodman.com. That's JudyGoodman.com. There comes a moment when you realize you're somewhere special, when you discover that each beautiful creature that you see has been rescued from a life of absolute horror and brought to this incredibly free place. Here's where their lives were forever changed and where yours will as well. Discover over 500 tigers, bears, and lions at the brand new visitor center at the Wild Animal Sanctuary just outside Denver. For more information, visit wildanimalsanctuary.org. Discover true freedom at the Wild Animal Sanctuary. Have you ever had the sense that your thoughts might actually be doing something? Ancient secrets of manifesting have been masterfully revealed in the award-winning book Manifesting 123 by Ken Elliott. For the first time, the author's experiences and stories in this book describe exactly how your thoughts can create anything. You've been doing this all your life, but it's never been fully explained for you until now. Visit Manifesting123.com for more information today. Manifesting123.com there are nearly 2 million Americans living with amputation. Many live right here in San Antonio. Becoming an amputee can be scary, frustrating, isolating, but there's no reason to feel alone. The San Antonio Amputee Foundation is here to help support you and guide you toward resources such as home and car modifications and even prosthetic limbs. For more information or to make a donation, visit saamputee.org. We'll help you live a full, active life, one step at a time. San Antonio Amputee Foundation, healing limbs, hearts, and souls. Welcome back to Moments with Marianne. We're here today with special guest David Kaczynski, and he's sharing with us his new book, Send Packs. Now, David, before I went for break, I was kind of thinking of a few things, and and gosh, this book is extremely thought-provoking. When we look at both sides and how they are armed during this conflict and what happened, it's quite a bit different than what the history books say and what we've been taught. They fired pistol rounds. It was a pistol round. It was a rim-fire pistol round, and the Indians were not familiar with a lever-action rifle. They were not. It it was uh, the trapdoor is what they were used to. And trying, whenever anybody who's ever worked a lever-action rifle, if you half-cock it, which you could do if you were on a, you know, on a pony without a saddle trying to put the next round in, you'd double-feed it. And they were not familiar. And, of course, any weapon at that time, brand-new weapon, which is what they had, uh, it it would be stiff. So you have to extend the lever all the way down until it clicks. That that means it's grabbed the next round. But if you do it halfway, that means it's taking the ejected round and it's jamming it with the new round. So I I can't. Plus, it's a pistol. It's a pistol cartridge. It's not a rifle. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and the and Custer, which is the only thing the historians talked about, practiced. 
he definitely practiced with his all of his guys were excellent shots. So hitting the Indian when they were 500 yards out, which is what they did, they'd fire in volleys. And uh, when I read the Indians, the Indian accounts, by the way, the first Indian to be interviewed that was actually at the Little Bighorn was over a year later. So in the FBI, we had the magic 15 minutes. In other words, if I can't talk to a witness within 15 minutes, he's already integrated so much of his life into what happened. I'm not saying it's not the truth. It's a truth in his head, but it's nothing I can take to court. And interviewing somebody after a year is a waste of time as far as, you know, getting evidence. Yeah, just things change, perspectives. I mean, that happens with car accidents. So, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Good point. How can people keep keep things straight, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Well, do you know, and I really applaud you because, I mean, my goodness, in your book, the every character you have is so three-dimensional. Are they all real people, or is there a mix? I just had a chill go up my back, Marianne. <laughs> uh, they're, they're the best of everybody I've known. Um, a lot of them I've lost, so it's it was wonderful being sort of being with them again. But uh, the love, you know, these these unknown people, you know, in the 18, 1880s, 1870s, you know, they actually built the West. You know, that's what I want to portray. They, they weren't these, like the women. You know, you look at a Western, and the women are almost like Joan Cleaver, you know. They, they got everything but the pearls and the, the vacuum cleaner. No, they were some, they were some brilliant, intelligent women out there you know, on the West, and we lost 800,000 men in the Civil War. 800,000. So there were a lot of them that had to run everything in the West because their husbands were dead. And did they, oh, well, let, let me go marry somebody else. No, they took over the ranches. They did it. You know, they, they carried the weapons. They learned how to use them. They They did everything. And so that's... Another story that I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad that you did because it really did portray women as strong and really um, able to take care of themselves. And yeah, some people were kind of new to it, but at the same time, after some education, they were able to really, you know, use that um, that education and that knowledge to further themselves and just be strong women in in the book. And they they had to be able to kill. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. And, you know, that was the reality of the West. You know, whether it be a mountain lion, a bear about to kill you, or an Indian deciding that he wanted to kill everybody in in your family, and they did in horrible ways. And so you have to be able to kill them first. And what happens and what I've... When I teach people, you know, combat skills is that when they are they get in combat, the mind goes to a certain area of because the mind's going. They've never done this before. Never the mind hasn't seen combat before, and so they go back into the brain looking for muscle memory. And what comes up is what they've been taught, and that's why, like in one of the situations, Dorinda does a perfect cavalry dismount and goes into you know low ready position. 
And, you know, she didn't even know she was doing it, but it was, you know, all these guys that had been in combat were going, wow, I haven't seen too many guys be able to pull that off and here, you know, a girl did it. So I, I, I love that scene. I mean, besides the other thing, the things that were going on is that everybody has it in them and you never know what's going to happen until you've been in your first toss up. You know, you can be the fancy shooter in the world, but you don't know how, how you're going to react when, you know, it's for real. Mm-hmm. That's why it takes someone with your, you know, very unique background and skill set to write this book. Because if we're talking about, you know, um, people who have been in the military, warriors, people who are um, out there protecting, you know, our country, and that's what these people were, you know, these gentlemen were doing at the time, it takes somebody who has been in those shoes to be able to really understand what's going on. And which leads me to Marianne. <laughs> you, you're the first person who's read the book that I've talked to that really gets what I'm trying to say in, in many of the spiritual ways. And so I have so much enjoyed talking to you about the book. Oh, well, thank you. It has been a real treat and a joy to be able to spend time talking with you about the book. And there's so much in there when we talk about, you know, because, you know, it it would uh, leave people two-dimensional if they also did not have a spiritual side. And people were very spiritual um, during that that time. And so there's a lot of that, especially when we talk about um, Native American Indians, you know, they have huge spirituality, and there's that connection as well. So, you know, I liked how you were able to weave that in the story. Well, I do have a great respect for their religion. Um, they they call him grandfather. We call him, you know, God. And I think in, in the general context of the world, we're talking about the same person or mm-hmm. entity. Let's call it an entity. He, you know, God's not really a person. He's entity. way beyond that. I, I think uh I think in the Bible it says if if we actually knew who God was, it would you know, our our brains would pop out of our heads because the concept, you know, we we, we like to put a concept onto it, but I think that so many people because they're uncomfortable with spirituality they try to say, okay, it doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I worked at the national labs, right? All scientists. Okay. <clears throat> and they would go, you know, you know, when I would talk about spirituality and how in combat it kept me alive, you know, they give this little, <laughs> I said, okay, uh, what's, what's the formula for gravity again? Like that. I said, prove it. Uh, well, you know, Einstein I said, no, prove it. You, you just told me, how do I prove spirituality? Prove it. Prove that there is gravity. Well, you can see that because of what happened. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it really, when you bring that into your story, allows people to have this complete, you know, viewpoint. Because, again, I mean, otherwise, I don't think your characters would have been as... Um, so well-rounded if it had not been for, you know, adding that point, that point in as well. I think I have a few more. Well, thank you. Uh, That's, you know, 
Yeah, well, it obviously I had a lot of help writing it from from God and from the spirits of the Seventh Cavalry that helped me write it, and uh, it just I couldn't write it without doing it. So I, thanks for noticing that. Well, and talk about noticing things. And when someone picks up your book, they immediately see the cover, which is absolutely gorgeous. And I understand, isn't it? You ha- oh my god, you had this commissioned, right? Yes, uh, I, I went. You know, a call for artists internationally, and uh, <clears throat> I got some samples. And this wonderful lady named Lena from Lithuania, which is also the name of the true name of one of the characters, uh, you know, as soon as, you know, she had, you know, the nom de guerre that they have, you know, in, you know, when they're doing the international. So I looked at some of her, her book covers and I said, well, okay, I want to use you. And so here's what, what happened, Mary. It was just so phenomenal. You know, she goes, okay, give me some idea of, you know, something I could start with. And so the first time I talked to her or emailed, I said, okay, just think of, you know, uh, Leonides, you know, the three hundred Spartans, 300 Spartans at, uh, against Darius. And then, you know, she sent me a few little sketches and ideas she had. And she said, okay, I, I'm not familiar with, you know, the history of the United States. And so I sent her chapter 12. <laughs> and uh, she came up with a rough outline that you see. You know, the weapons were wrong, the uniforms were wrong, but the feeling was there. And the, the fact that she just, you know, she read the book and read it and got it, and it was just so fantastic. And uh, I guess I'm giving it away a little bit, but <clears throat> if I, I also wanted some little clues for those of those out there that had been in the Green Berets, right next to Custer's body on the cover. Mm-hmm. there's a broken arrow and I just, I, I told you what broken arrow was. And, uh, if you look on the back cover, there's crossed arrows with a knife going down the center of it, which is, that's, that's our symbol. The um, army green berets is the crossed arrows with the, the, the knife through it. And the biggest thing, you know, she sent me, you know, okay, I want to show, tons of brass you know or tons of you know spent cartridges everywhere just to show 31 indians killed no way Uh uh-uh each one of those 236 guys had 100 rounds and the biggest complaint the indians had there wasn't any ammunition and that's where occam's razor hit me the indians didn't win he was out of ammunition that's where i started backtracking you know that hold on if he didn't have any ammunition and he sent that, that message, why why would another officer do that to another officer? Okay, what was Custer doing before this? Da, 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 you know, and that that's what my research was like. You know, okay, here's the fact. He, he he ran out of ammunition. The Indians didn't beat him. He didn't have any ammunition left. But definitely used the you know, the carbines as war clubs, but that would only go so far. And the pistol cartridges were very effective at short range. And especially when you're out of ammunition, you can't fight back. So it's it, it's been, you know, one thing is laid out in front of the other, and so many people out there that aren't spiritual don't see, 
you know, what God's putting in front of him, like that joke about the guy goes to heaven. He said, oh, God, I thought I asked for your help and you didn't help me. Uh, hold on, you were drowning. Yeah. What about the boat that came by and you said, no, God's going to help me, and you didn't do anything? Uh, what about the helicopter that came by and they lowered the little basket for you? And you say, God's going to help me. What was that? <laughs> and that's what I feel so often with people that, you know, they choose to ignore spirituality. Yeah. Well, and there's so much more to this book. I mean, there are so many times during reading this, I mean, I would just cry. I mean, you, you did such a beautiful job pulling this all together and really weaving in not only the history, but the character so well that people can get a really sense of being there at that time and what it was like. You know, you did a beautiful job with that. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And, yeah, it's, I mean, people that saw the movie Titanic, everybody knows what's going to happen. And that doesn't change, you know, what happened prior to that. And mm-hmm. there was so much going on, you know, not only uh, with the little bighorn, but, you know, I also go into how, you know, Mexico was basically creating terrorists during the Civil War. You know what? I was going to ask you about that, <laughs> but I didn't because, I mean, there's so many things in here. I think a lot of people have no idea what's really happening at the time. And, you know, no. I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit for our listeners because, you know, you look at that and you're like, wait a minute, that was happening too during that same time? Exactly. And what I the, the reason I connected the dots on that is my whole background is special ops and state sp- state sponsored terrorism. And so I, I started reading some of the cavalry reports from, uh, you know, bliss and several of the other ports that were out there before the civil war started and the Apache, you know, all the, the Apache traded with the United States and they were friendly to the United States and they had ancient weapons, and you know they do what they had to do, but they'd stay out of the way of the U.S. Army. And <clears throat> there's this one story that is so obscure, and I only had you know God's help to find it. But a cavalry patrol went out. Uh, this a new major came to the fort, so he went out with a with a patrol, and they were ambushed by the Apache, and they were all killed. So the Apache came up and they brushed off their jackets because they're, you know, they had dust on them and they thought they were federales. And so what the what the Apache did is they, you know, put sage on the bodies and they made travois and they actually walked. You know, they didn't they weren't on horses and led their horses. They walked the cavalry horses with the travois of the the dead trooper on the back to the fort. And basically, you know, said, we bad. We thought you were, you know, Mexican army. Now, does that sound like the same Apaches that were after the Civil War? No. And plus, the Apaches had uh, Henry rifles. They had, you know, they didn't have the old Springfields. They had Henry rifles. They had Winchesters. They had modern weapons. And when they looked at some of the serial numbers, they they weren't listed or they were listed as, you know, for Mexico. Made in the United States, but came out of Mexico, and that's classic, you know, you know, state-sponsored terrorism. They gave the uh, the Apache a place to go to, 
you know, to escape the Texas Rangers, who were constantly winning battles at 80 to 1 odds against, against the Indians and, you know, or the cavalry, you know, and they just hop into Mexico and the Mexicans, would, you know, take care of them just so they could go back and murder and slaughter Texans. You know, it's interesting because when you hear that, you know, that you were able to find that piece of history that gives that information, it really puts a different lens on what was happening during that time than when most people think. Uh, Marianne, you know what the last name of that major was? No. Cole. There you go. Is my is my family name. Wow. So that's how I found out about it. It was like, now it's starting to make sense. Yeah. How that all comes together. Well, I'm sure one thing that our listeners want to know, do you have a book two on the works? Because I know when people are reading this, and I'm doing the same thing, I'm rereading the book because there was like so much <laughs> in here. I'm like, Thanks. ooh. And Thanks. you know you pick up different things every time you read books like this. Yeah. You, know? you will. On, on mine, you will. You really will. I mean, there is so much little small details in there that are like, Oh, that's cool. Yeah, all right, yeah. Yes, <laughs> actually it's part of a trilogy. And it's really the the history between the Civil War and World War One is pretty much nothing. I mean, very few people knows, know what happened. You know, about the only thing historic that anybody knows during that time period was the gunfight at the OK Corral, which... By the way, that was wrong, too, you know, what they were saying. But I go into the incredible people that were, you know, became part of it. I mean, this is this is when Einstein was born, you know, during that period. And unfortunately, this is also when Hitler was born, when Mao Zedong was born, and when Stalin was born. So it was a different world making up some really sick psychopaths, but they're also some wonderful people. And so the trilogy ends at uh, at San Juan Hill with uh, Teddy Roosevelt, one of my favorite characters in history. And uh, there's a, there's a lot of you know little stories that go into it. Uh, the first uh, female doctor, which is going to be actually one of the characters from the first book, and <clears throat> there, there's a whole lot of uh, intel. The you know how the the intel world started after the Civil War, and uh, it's just really fun weaving everything in there, and you are going to love what happens to Tom Green in book number two. (laughs) Ooh, I can't wait. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, you've got all these great characters, and, you know, it's not, you know, and while the story ended for a few of them, there's still many more of them that the story continues. And I'd love to hear and read the next book when that becomes available. My goodness. Well, I'd ask actually something happened about the second book that I'd like to, is spiritual and sad, is that uh, uh, Deb Nab introduced me to this wonderful veteran and uh, he was in a car wreck. And so he was at the VA hospital and I know what it's like being in the VA hospital alone. Uh, and so I went to see him, you know, which is what real colonels do. And so he was like, hey, 
good to see you. I mean, he's from New Jersey. I, I could do a Jersey accent, but not that good, you know. And uh, so we just started talking. He had read the book. He loved the book. In fact, it was his statement was that it's the first book I've ever read that I wanted to reach through the pages and tear her throat out. And you'll have to read the book. To, <laughs> and it will become really obvious which female he's talking about. But uh, <clears throat> so I went there and we, you know, talked army stuff and then talked the book and everything like that. And Mary, I got to tell you, I was stuck on for the second book on the, the main female character. I didn't know what's going to happen. <clears throat> I had a really good idea of everybody else except the main female character. And I, I didn't, you know, I was like, okay, is she going to be okay? Is, you know, what's she going to, so I asked Steve and I said, okay, Steve, look, you have really owned every character in the book. And so I got to ask you, what's going to happen to so-and-so? And he didn't even hesitate a half a second. And he goes, she's strong. She's, she's strong. She's going to be good. She's going to be all right. And, uh, unfortunately Steve died suddenly near this last month. Um, and so it, you know, it's obviously stuck in my head because I went home immediately and knew exactly what to write for her. And, and uh, you know, she redeems herself. And so I, I really appreciate that. And so much help I've had from, you know, so many people. And I love my readers. You know, I, I never, you know, I love the story and I want the story to get out about the seventh cavalry being heroes. They, they weren't cowards. They were heroes. And the more people that read the book, the more people, you know, they go, wow, you can really write. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, we can write, you know, I, I didn't do this alone. You know, I had the help from, from, uh, how, how did you put it? Uh, higher management, upper management, yeah. <laughs> upper management. <laughs> you know, and it's funny. I mean, even in your book, you talk about how Stephen King, like he, he talks about when his characters come alive, although we're not sure exactly where that's coming from, but, um, yeah, I know. Yeah. <clears throat> well, when I went, I, I heard it, I think Johnny Carson might have even been, when he was interviewing him, he said, well, you know, you're such a prolific writer. You're, you're really good. He goes, I don't write. I take dictation. And it never made sense to me until I started this book. And I got to tell you, everything, the fight scene, I didn't write any of that. It was, it was all taking dictation like Stephen King does. Well, do you know, my goodness, David, I mean, we can talk for hours on this book. You are just a great individual. Love talking with you about send packs. And um, there's so much information here. Where can our, leader, our readers connect with you and learn more about your book and be part of your community? Well, uh, my webpage, which is uh, www.sendpacksbook.com or um, Amazon. It's on Amazon. And by the way, I will have an audio version of the book next month. So you'll be able to listen to it in your car. And uh, actually, Deb is doing the female parts. And so uh, <clears throat> more, I think more people can enjoy it because, you know, people are so busy. And as you found out, uh, my wonderful, wonderful editor, uh, just 4-8 Charlie is what we'll, she'll go by. Um, that very, the last, uh, the last page, hopefully I don't choke up because I've read it, you know, obviously hundreds of times and it still chokes me up, but you know, <clears throat> she read the last part and she, she goes, okay, I know what you're trying to say, but what I want you to do is take these six pages 
and put them into one page to where when you hear that last line, you read that last line, the stage goes dark and the mic drops. And after about 50 tries, she sent me a text back. And it, uh, oh, man. It, uh, she, she said, Mike has been dropped. You know, and really, I mean, what do you think, that, that last line? Oh, my God. I was crying. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I was texting you earlier today going, oh, I finished the book and, you know, crying and look like it, you know. So, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it really, it's a, it's a, um, it, I mean, it's a cry that you're kind of going, gosh, I really want, you know, yeah. um, to follow yeah. up on another book on this because there are so many pieces that you're like, oh, if it ends like this, it can't be done, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Actually, uh, one of the over Christmas, <clears throat> one of the people that work here, you know, in the in the complex, you know, they were really excited to get the book, and they loved the book. And their uh, their mom came by for Christmas and was babysitting, and uh, they they came to me and they said, "I got to tell you what my my mom said." I said, "What's that?" She says, "You go tell David that is the first book that I have read in my entire lifetime, and I'm old." She's probably younger than me, but I'm old, and I can tell you I've read a lot of books, but it's the first book I've ever had that just had me bawling. Aww. So I said, well, tell her don't feel bad because I had to, re- I had to rewrite it and do that stuff, and every time I go to that one point and we talk, now that you've read it, you know that one point where there is no way that any normal human being can't get choked up at that one no. Mm-hmm. No. You know, it's just, it's with everything that scene. And that was another thing that was just set up by, you know, just I, I could feel my the back of my neck tingling as I was writing it because I could see everything. And it it came out well, I think. It came out very well. You should, I, I know as an author, you should be very proud. I mean, it's uh, impacting a lot of people and really having us take a hard look at what we thought history was and, you know, and this has happened many times where we have to really take a hard look at history and go, you know what, that might not actually be true. We may need to investigate exactly. this further right. and rewrite it, you know? Yeah, let the truth, you know, that's one thing I learned in the FBI. I mean, eventually the truth is going to come out. And that's why we had, uh, you know, the guys that did the cold case files. You had to have, you had been direct, you know, directly you know recognized by you know either the director or a lot of you know AUSAs saying this guy's really got his act together to do the cold cases because the great thing about cold cases is that you get to look at it with a new eye and things could change and the truth never changes so you just look at all the stuff that changed and stuff that didn't change oh okay well she's in Sacramento California (laughs) I think we talked about that (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we had a chat about that. And for our listeners, again, if you want to connect with David, you can at his website, sendpacksbook.com, and we'll have the link below. You know, David, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us here today. Thank you so much, Marianne. It's great talking to you. Well, thank you, David. It's been such an honor to spend this time with you and, of course, to talk about your new book, Send Packs. Again, if you'd like to connect with David, 
And learn more about his book, you can at his website, sendpacksbook.com. This fascinating read's available on Amazon and on David's website. Well, we're at the end of our time today. I would like to thank everyone for tuning in. You're listening to Moments with Marianne. And remember, make every moment count. In a single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields, ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary, a recognized leader in her own work. And while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Marianne will bring the best guest and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Moments with Marianne airs every Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Make sure to tune in and visit momentswithmarianne.com for more information.